0: Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 262. And on today's episode, I drove out to Ridge, New York. It's about mm, an hour and a half from New York City, just where the fishtail starts on Long Island, like right by Riverhead, if you're familiar with the area. And I went out there and I met with Greg Metzger, Greg is the SOFO shark research and education program field coordinator and he's a captain of real science charters. And the work that Greg does is he catches sharks and he tags them and then they go off out (laughs) into the world, into the ocean and his tags are able to provide specific data. Now, this work has been done for very long. So what that data will ultimately yield Well, that's still kind of up in the air. But for now, we're able to tell through his tracking the sharks where they're going. On some of the sharks, they actually have video. So Greg showed me uh, an amazing video of, I think it was a striper and it was traveling in a school of other sharks, which is amazing to see and also like a little bit terrifying. Uh, So he's doing really, really cool work. It's something I really didn't know a whole lot about. You know, growing up, I was interested in sharks as probably any kid would be, learning about large animals and large reptiles and large mammals. Uh, I was fascinated by dinosaurs. I think all kids are. But getting a little older, I saw jaws, which terrified me. And that sort of like colored my relationship to sharks. And so I would go out into the ocean and I would be petrified that something was going to come and, Grab a hold of me and yank me underwater, and that would be the end of Tim. And there would be no voyages. So it's cool to hear a more sober vision of what sharks actually are. Yes, of course, they are apex predators, and they will eat things if they are very hungry, but they're not specifically targeting humans as a food source. So it's awesome to hear the science and to hear Greg dispel some myths and to learn about the world that he is like so heavily immersed in. If you go to the show notes for this episode, you will find a link to his work. Uh, I believe, yeah, I'll also provide his email address if you want to contact him. And they do take people out on on charter ships on his boat. So perhaps you can sign up if you're out on Long Island to to tag along and, and see the work that he's doing. I'm going to go this summer. I hope. I think that would be really cool. So do that if you're interested in finding out more. And there's a link to my Patreon account. That is a subscription-based service where you can give monthly and get some cool kickbacks like shirts, stickers, things from around the world, sometimes books if uh, the guest that I have on has published something. I got a lot of stuff coming up. It's been slow through February. I had some other projects I was working on that you'll hear about, but I'm traveling this month and I'm so excited, so there's tons of stuff coming. But for now, check out this conversation with Greg Metzger. First of all, Greg, thank you for having me out here. Yeah, uh, Thanks for coming. This is great. I don't know that I've ever been to Ridge. My mom used to live off of 68, which I believe I took to get out here. Uh, but for for people to sort of put us in a geographical context, we're at like the start of the fishtail on Long Island.
1: Correct. Yeah, just a little west of the start of the fishtail. Yeah. The fishtail's riverhead, and we're just a little bit west of that by about 10 minutes.
0: Okay, cool, cool. Uh, Are you from here originally? I am not.
1: So uh, I still supposedly have a little bit of my western New York accent that's Uh. blended with the Long Island accent. I've officially lived on Long Island now longer than I've lived in western New York, but I grew up in uh, Wyoming County, which is a small county, very farming community near Lethra State Park is kind of like the closest famous thing. So either you've never heard of it or you're like, oh yeah, I know where that
0: is. Not far from Rochester,
1: right? Not far from Rochester, yeah. So we're like 60 miles south of Buffalo, about 40 miles south of Rochester.
0: Okay, very cool. Uh, did you grow up fishing then?
1: So I grew up uh, freshwater fishing and, and hunting up there. We had four wheelers and we're fortunate to, you can't see another house from our house. So we, hmm. I grew up very rural but happy, happy to do that, small community. But I always wanted to be a marine scientist even really, since I was like a little kid. Um, and that sort of came from watching Jacques Cousteau on uh, Sundays, you know, through black and white TV and rabbit ears. And I was like, man, that guy's got a great job. That's really, really cool. Um, interesting, though, I, I the first time I ever saw the ocean was the summer of my 11th grade in high school when the chemistry teacher was clearing his board of all these uh, opportunities that... Uh, colleges had sent him looking for advertisements for summer programs. And so he's pulling off, you know, the the sheets off the board that have been there. Nobody's looked at throwing Mm. them out. And he's like, anybody want to be a marine biologist? Ha, ha, ha. He's getting ready to throw it in because everybody is mostly farming community. So I was like, actually, wait a minute. Like, yeah, I'll I'll take that. He's like, really? He says, yeah. So I brought it home to my parents and it was – you know, this opportunity for a marine science summer cap at this small college called the Long Island University at the Southampton campus. So, um, my, you know, parents coughed up the cash and I came down and that was the first time I had ever seen the ocean, tasted salt water from the ocean. Um, and so it was a small community college, you know, not a community college, it was a small university, great program right on the water. Um, my grades weren't great, but they were good enough to get me in and I haven't left.
0: So. Wow. And the ocean's intoxicating.
1: Yeah. It was It was amazing. Yeah. You know, I, I still amazed at how salty the water is. You know, all this time, all these gallons of water later that I've drank, every time I get a splash, I was like, man, I can't believe anything lives in this. It's just so <laughs> salty.
0: So when you were fishing when you were a kid... Um, were you doing it as like sport fishing, or to to eat the fish, or like yeah, a scientific yeah, lens? No,
1: definitely not not science. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was I was up there till I was eighteen, so mm-hmm. it was it was mostly mostly recreational. Um, I let and still do let most of the fish I catch go, um, but I love to eat fish, and mm-hmm. I have no no issues or problems doing that. Um, you know, so so I would say I'm I'm probably a 50-50 split in terms of like okay you know if the opportunity comes up certainly if if a fish you know fishing the way we do fish get injured you know with the way the hooks go in and that sort of stuff so obviously if it's a legal fish to keep and it's injured then of course that one's going to come home i'm not just going to throw it back in Um, right but yeah you know if there's nothing wrong with the fish and we've got a full cooler or i i don't have the time to deal with the fish properly when i get home you know then they all they all get let go
0: did you ever see, uh, I'm sure you have, but the the original, I guess, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea? I don't know if I've ever, I've seen it in bits and pieces.
1: Okay. I've seen it in bits and pieces, but I definitely would not be able to okay. probably pull up any memories of...
0: Well, I never, I never went down the like marine biologist route, but I used to get caught up in movies as a kid. And um, in it, there, there's like a scientist on their underwater vessel and... Uh, they're like eating squid pudding and all these sort of like <laughs> <laughs> magical dishes under the ocean, and uh, I got caught up in that for a while. Like, oh, I'm gonna live in this underwater vessel and study the marine <laughs> the yeah. marine life. And yeah. That that was short lived, though.
1: Okay. Well, did you ever get your squid pudding or?
0: Uh, no, I've. I mean, we can we can get into some things I've eaten around the world, but um, uh, I've eaten some things that might be strange to people <laughs> here in the U.S. Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so the 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 work that you're doing now, yeah, uh, it does it, it. has its roots in college or just after college.
1: Yeah, no, it's solely based in college. Mm. Um, so it really is four. So our four founding fathers, if you want to uh, use that sort of uh, term, uh, all were college buddies from from those four years that we were at LIU mm. Southampton. So um, we each went off into a different sort of avenue. Um, that all. Was related to the marine environment in some way. Um, we, well, some of us lost touch for years uh, between you know, when we graduated and then when we re- the shark thing sort of pulled us back together. Um, so there's Frank Quivetto, is uh, currently the director of the South Fork Natural History Museum, which is where you know we do our our work out of. Uh, we have Chris Paparo of Fish Guy Photos, mm-hmm. and so he's. Uh, kind of our PR person. He, we, you know, he takes the, he takes a tremendous amount of pictures and videos and uh, writes a lot of uh, articles and, and gives uh, tremendous amounts of lectures, you know, promoting and and just talking about and educating the work that we do. Uh, I have, so I teach marine science and aquaculture at Southampton High School. So I have the summer off, which allows me and because of my roots in fishing you know i have the the boat and the gear and um definitely don't call myself an expert but have been lucky enough to be able to get out and learn mm-hmm. some things to be able to, to target these sharks. So I I do the field work, um, and then we have our lead scientist, which is uh, Dr. Toby Curtis. So he's a NOAA Fisheries biologist in Massachusetts. So um, so those are sort of the four. We were all college buddies that you know were able to keep in touch, and uh, Toby was the one that really sort of planted the seed that. You know, because I was out catching sharks. So it was, you know, recreational. I, I really wasn't interested necessarily in, you know, bringing them all back and, and hanging them up at the dock. Um, and with my background in marine science, you know, I knew that, that these sharks that we were catching and taking pictures of and letting go was really valuable data to somebody swimming away because mm. nothing's known about sharks virtually nothing's known about sharks and so we were catching quite a few a year and a wide variety and so you know toby had said hey he says you know there's there's a, a possibility that the south shore of long island is is a nursery for for white sharks so i was like you know what are you talking about I said, you know white shark he said not the great white shark he's like yeah, <laughs> I was like, really? I says, you mean to tell me, like, right? He says, yeah. He says, you know, there's some, you know, some strong evidence, you know, going back, to, you know, to the early, early days of um, initial shark research on Long Island. That, you know, they catch these little baby white sharks. And incidentally, they're they're caught in commercial gear or recreational gear every once in a while. A picture would come up. So he says, you know, if you're out there, and he says, if you could catch. One or if we could start catching them consistently, he says it would really be a big deal in in the, in the you know scientific community for white sharks because there's only really two confirmed nurseries at that time. Uh, one was in Southern California and one was in Australia, both the Pacific Ocean. Mm. So I was like, there's no nurseries for white sharks. He says there are, but you know nobody's really gone out and targeted them and tried to um, you know check the boxes for the criteria which would define a nursery. So I was like. Well, this is fantastic! Like game on. Let's let's make it happen. So, so that's how you know sort of the conversation evolved. And you know, at that time, we were all in our current positions. Um, you know, Chris, Frank, Toby, and I. And so we started in twenty fifteen to try to catch and tag the first Young of the Year white chart.
0: oh Yeah. So, what is Young of the Year? Because I've seen that a lot in your uh, yeah. So Young work. of
1: the Year, it's capital Y O Y is how you would see it. The, Typically printed. Um, and basically what that means is that's the year the shark was born. So it was born that year. It's less than a year old Okay, is what young of the year means.
0: Now there's a lot more information out now. Like there are Twitter accounts that are uh, paired with a shark who's been tagged and you could kind of watch it, which is awesome. Yeah, And I think a lot of the interest stems probably even from things like Shark Week on TV, which for the last what 15 years, maybe 10, 15 years has been super popular. But at the time that you started this, it sounds like there was very little data from which to draw from.
1: So the there was n- virtually no information mm. about this year class of white sharks mm. because... Um, they, the, nobody really targeted them and nobody really knew where there was a pile of them. So the larger animals, the larger white sharks, there were aggregates. You know, they were starting to feed on seals. So all you had to do was find a seal colony and you would find the white sharks. And so that's where like Dr. Greg Skolmo out of Massachusetts, you know, when the seal population started to come back in Massachusetts, they were the prey, and so naturally the predators would follow. So um, the, the sharks swam back to him, and they're right there. And he was able to, to generate a tremendous amount of um, uh, data because the white sharks are there. He has easy access to them. You know, and was able to start getting tags on them. Mm. Um, for for our work, you know, trying to we we just had a few incidents here and there through through history um, to go by, and it was really trying to figure out the magic combo to target these these little guys and catch them with consistency. So so once we started doing because nobody, no science, scientist had really worked with or tried to uh, go after um, that year class of white sharks because they're really hard.
0: Interesting. They're hard to, they're to hard. catch.
1: They're hard to catch. They're hard to get. They're they're very cagey individual, and there's not a lot of them. I mean, one of, one of the things um, that sort of just popped out um, in conversation with Dr. Curtis, you know, he he did like a he called it the back of a napkin sort of quick back of the napkin sort of population estimate on the number of, oh. of these young of the year per year that were that that are around, you know, and he used whatever f- you know information he had based on, you know, bycatch and incidents and stuff like whatever fuzzy numbers he used, to, you know, that's his wheelhouse. And his, his rough back of the napkin estimate is 400. Whoa. So we're chasing 400 individuals a year. Like in the Atlantic or just? In the Atlantic. Wow. Or at least in the New York bite, Right. Which is the area that, that um, has been defined as the nursery.
0: So, and the nursery is where they're all actually giving birth. So
1: that's different. So okay. that is still an unknown for the white shark um, life history. We don't know where these animals are born. Okay. But we do know that they end up on New- Long Island that that first year. And some of them, some of the ones that we've tagged, have come back for a second year. But we found quickly that they start to expand their um, north south summer, winter migration and ba- pretty much start to take on the entire um, East Coast migration.
0: So is nursery then where they're breeding?
1: Uh, again, we don't know about Interesting. that. You know? So those, those, you know, we don't really know where breeding happens and we don't really know where birthing happens. But okay. we do know that they consistently end up, the, the young of the year consistently end up on Long Island. Um, typically they, they start showing up middle of May Mm. And they're here through uh, middle of October. So they spend um, basically April swimming from their overwintering area, which is in the Carolinas. So they overwinter in the Carolinas. They spend the month of April swimming from the Carolinas to Long Island. They hang out on Long Island until the middle of October. And then they spend basically the uh, November swimming back down south to the Carolinas. That's for that first sort of year. Um, based on the tagging data that we have so far. Outside of that, their next migration north, so they're snowbirds. So that next migration north, most of them do not come back to Long Island that second year. They start to expand to where, and then that they don't necessarily go back to the South Carolina. They start to move farther south into Florida and and that sort of thing. Like I said, it's pretty wild how fast it seems like they start to take on the full north-south migration.
0: Is the migration following a food source?
1: Uh, I think our, it, it's water temperature. So whether it's the water temperature that's driving the food or the food, you know, it, it, it's, I think it's it's primarily I, I think it would be safe to say it's the water temperature that's mm. driving everything else.
0: That's really interesting. I read uh, just to prepare a bit and, and I recognize maybe I, I will go sort of beyond the scope of your work and if I do I apologize, but um, yeah, well, if I if I don't know, I will just let you know. Cool, cool. Um, uh, so sharks essentially like once, or I guess most species of sharks, once they're born, that's it. They're independent. There's no coddling period like like our yeah. <laughs> two years of or 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 more uh, that that humans go through. Um, but it sounded to me like there's. Some sort of like n- actual, in quotes, nursing that takes place with white sharks, like there's like uterine milk or something like that? Um,
1: I, don't, I don't know about that okay. part of it. Um, I do, so, um, all right, so let's see if I can get this right. Uh, sharks can have, have three different ways of reproduction. Hmm. So oviparous, viviparous, and ovoviviparous. So oviparous means they lay an egg basically like a chicken. So they create an, uh, you know, an egg that's fertilized inside some sort of a shell. It's deposited wherever in the substrate or wherever they wrap it around things and it's left to develop on its own. So that's oviparous. Viviparous is what we do. So there's um, an umbilical cord that provides nutrients to the, to the baby shark through basically... We're viviparous animals. Mm-hmm. So, and I believe that's where the white shark is. So they're they're provided, they're you know, they're provided their nutrients through the mother's blood supply, basically like we do. Okay. And then ovoviviparous is sort of a blend of the two. The baby shark stays inside the mother's uterus, but it gets its nutrients from an egg yolk.
0: Whoa
1: it doesn't get its nutrients from an umbilical cord. Like placenta, right. And then so uh, the viviparous and ovoviviparous both give birth to live young. So when the babies are mature and are able to hack it on their own, mom gives birth and the animals are, you know, the babies are left to defend for themselves. The oviparous, it has to hatch. And then once it hatches out of the egg, you know, it develops in the egg. And then once it's fully developed it pops out of the eggshell and swims on its merry way.
0: And that depends on the species of of shark?
1: Yeah, so the different species of sharks will reproduce one of those three ways.
0: Interesting. I'm am wondering and I guess there's no way to know, but just through biological evolution if they was they developed that particular form of birth based upon like what the predators were like at the time or something like that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, that's that's definitely outside of my Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> um Okay, so if if you're catching a shark, mm-hmm. how exactly are you tagging them? And and let's let's tell people like what exactly is a tag, and what is it telling you?
1: Yeah, so um, technology has allowed us to really uh, it's 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 allowed us to collect information that previously we really had no way of knowing. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of our shark understanding happened because of what we saw at the surface. Right. Well, they're only at the surface for, you know, fractions of seconds or if, you know, somebody was lucky enough to film something underwater. But that, you know, that that's very limited in, in terms of what they're actually doing day to day to day. So but that was the best we had. And, you know, we did did with it what we could. Technology allowed us now to to have a tremendous suite of tags that give us all sorts of information, and it's really up to the researcher to pick the tag that's going to best give them the data to hopefully answer their question. Mm. So our question um, are really on habitat usage. So when the sharks are in our area, how are they utilizing the habitat? Mm. You know we have about six or seven different species of sharks that are, uh, we could catch. In, in any given day in the same spot. So, you know, that's kind of goes against mother nature, right? You can't have two organisms in the, in the same niche because mm-hmm. then they compete with each other. All right, well, we have, like I said, five different species of sharks on any given day in the exact same, we anchor the boat sometimes. So we're catching multiple species of sharks literally in the same spot. Mm. So how are they not competing? How are they not breaking mother nature's rule? You know, so the tags that we put on the sharks collect very um, high-resolution data from from them, um, but they only stay on a short period of time. So the, the two, we have three tags that so because we, of
0: battery life or something.
1: Yeah, battery yeah. life. Yep, uh, and storage. Like you know, they're literally oh. mini computers that that are going is, on. Is it taking video? So the one tag does take video. Whoa. Yep. So so that's that's like our really super special. Um, so that that's CATS-CAM. So CATS is is uh, the company's customized animal tracking solution. So that's one of the most sophisticated tags that are pretty much out on the market right now. Mm. Um, if you've ever watched any of the Blue Planet series and you're literally riding the back of the blue whale yeah. or riding the back of the turtle, so that's, that's the type of tag that we have. So you're literally riding the back of the shark as it's swimming around its environment. So talk about, you know, Technology opening up the world of sharks. We can literally follow the shark. We're literally seeing what the shark is seeing from its perspective for a uh, 24-hour period of time. Oh. And in addition to the the video that we're getting, it's it's basically like a Fitbit. So it's collecting the um, the acceleration of the shark in three dimensions. It's collecting the angle of the shark's movement in three di- three dimensions. Plus, it's collecting the water temperature, the water depth. Um, the mag, it has a magnometer in it so it's, it's getting sort of uh, the directional change that it's, it's moving and, and it's collecting we have the TAG program to collect this data at uh, 50 times a second Whoa! so we're getting super fine scale movements on this animal we only put it on for 24 hours because the shark can't swim farther away than I can go get it with my little boat in 24 hours If we were to put it on for a week or a month, literally the shark could be in the middle of the ocean, it could be in Nova Scotia, it could be in Florida, and there's no way I'm going to get this $12,000 tag back. So that's the downside to the CATS-CAM is we get tremendous amounts of information, but we have to get the tag back in order to get that information. The good news is if we get the tag back, we get all the information, we can clean it up, clear the tag, recharge it, and put it out again on another animal, so...
0: Is it really difficult to recapture that same shark?
1: Okay, so we don't <laughs> have to catch the same shark because okay. that would basically be pretty much impossible. Yeah, the tag uh, attachments allow for it to release on its own. So, um, so we have what's called a galvanic release, and so the tags uh, attach to the shark, and within 24 hours, the part of the attachment. Um, um, basically dissolves. It's kind of like an Alka-Seltzer almost. Okay. And, and then there's nothing holding the tag on the shark anymore, and it releases from the shark and floats to the surface. There's two additional tags in the tag that allow us to then know that, where it, um, that it popped off and then how to go get it. So in the back of the CATS cam, there's a small satellite transmitter, so when the tag releases, that those that tag knows, hey, I'm above water. And so it turns on and starts relaying its GPS location to a satellite. So no matter where in the world this tag pops off, we're going to get an email saying, this is my GPS location, this is my GPS location. The problem is that satellite system doesn't have near the number of satellites in it that a, your GPS system uses. Oh. So I think there's... I, nine maybe satellites in the system. So the accuracy of that position is up to a mile off. So you're never gonna find this tag if you're literally a mile away from it. So how do you close that gap? There's a second tag in the back that emits um, a radio frequency. And so we'll go to the GPS location and I've yet to find the tag just based on the GPS location. Um, And then we'll turn the radio transmitter on and then we can hear the beeps from the radio. And then with that, it's directional. So when you're pointing the antenna at The tag, the beep is louder. And then as you move the antenna away from the tag, the the sound drops off. So you can sort of just keep sweeping your antenna back and forth and sort of keep moving the boat in the direction that the beep gets louder. And eventually you will find the tag. So luckily, um, I think we're up to seven deployments and we've been able to recover them each time.
0: Wow.
1: It's absolutely mind-blowing to me that all of this technology works. I mean, you're relying on software, hardware, satellites, and it works. Like, it works. And you're putting this piece of equipment on a wild animal and throwing it back into the ocean to swim wherever, and you're able to get it. And, I mean, it's just – if you think about every part that has to work and how many people are involved in the technology development, I mean, it's – Crazy.
0: Yeah, it makes it makes me feel incredibly unaccomplished. Like that is.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's and it works. Like it's crazy that it all works.
0: You mentioned how difficult it is to actually catch a white shark. Yeah. Uh, how difficult is it to get the tag on?
1: So the tag the tag process is pretty easy. So okay. um, we, you know, again, you know, I've only I've only put seven of the the cats cams on, but we've each time, you know, each time we, we look at our uh, alien abduction to the shark, as I, I like to refer mm. to it as, um, like like a, a pit crew, you know, uh, for a race car. Like this animal's here, we need to get our work on, done as quickly as possible and released because we're interested in habitat usage. So mm. how we want this animal, obviously we want it to be as healthy as it possibly can be as stress-free as possible so that it can recover back to normal as quickly as possible to give us its, its, its habitat usage. So um, so each time that we put the tag on, I've, I've come up with sort of a new quicker, better way to, and so we're when we first started out, we were like 15 to 18 minutes, and now we're down to like seven or eight minutes. Um, and I've made a few more tweaks even after our last deployment, and then the field season ended, so I, I had to go back to school. So, so we're excited to get back out. I mean, I think, you know, with anything that you do, it, you get better, you get faster. So, so that's sort of the most involved tag process to get on. The other tag that we use is uh, a satellite pop-off tag, and that basically just has a small uh, metal anchor, that it just gets pushed into the muscle underneath the dorsal fin. So ah. it literally takes five seconds to put that tag on.
0: My first introduction, probably like a lot of people born around the time that I was uh, with, White Sharks was watching Jaws. And, you know, some variation on Jaws takes place like every 10 years, a couple of years ago. There was a horrible, uh-huh. uh, what was it called? Uh, the Meg it was just like the cheesiest movie but all you know my point being often the large sharks are described as these just like indiscriminate killers like the the garbage bin of the ocean they'll just eat anything yeah. um your experience with them how true or how far off the mark is that yeah that's
1: well so you know the these sharks when they commit they're all in mm but they are eyeballing and looking and checking it out way before they commit. So there's, you know, we call it coming in hot, you know. Very, very, very few animals come in and just just come lying up to chum slick and just grab the bait and take off. Like that is so rare to Mm -hmm. have that experience happen where they come in hot. Most of the time you see them you know, you'll see a fin, you know, you might see a fin fairly far away and then it, it circles around and it gets closer. And, you know, we, we have other video that we put under the wall of cameras that we film under. So we have like 360 cameras that we put, put oh, under cool. the water to film because so that's a whole nother reason why we do that. But, you know, we can really see on those times when the animals come in, you know, we, we've, had, we've had white sharks. that was around the boat, I think almost 15 minutes, never touched a bait. Whoa. So it just came in and was swimming around. It would bump the chum bag. It would, you know, it was under the boat. You could see the bait in the background. Didn't even go you know, it would it would swim up by it and then and then swim away and then come back to the camera. Um, you know, I wish GoPros weren't as expensive as they are because They make excellent baits. I can't tell you how many times the sharks come up and bump them and bite them. And I mean, you know, if they weren't nine hundred bucks a piece, we'd be using them as our baits over, uh, you know, bunker or squid or something because they they love the electronics that's in there. Um, So they are super cautious, uh, you know, in terms of getting as much information as they can before they commit to actually taking the baits from my experience. You know, these, last year um, you know, I, had, I had two baby white sharks in the slick at the same time. I could see them, they're, they're pretty distinct. You know, we, have, we typically keep the baits close and there was one at each bait and they swam right up to it, looked at it. The one swam away, we never saw it again. The other one swam over to the other bait and looked at it and then swam away. You know, and this was freshly caught Tuna, so like, you know, and you think about, you know, if you have experience with shark fishing, like a nice fillet of tuna that was just caught, I mean, what's better than that? (laughs) Well, those two white sharks had no interest in it whatsoever in terms of committing, (laughs) so there was something that they didn't like and they didn't commit, so they swam right up to it an inch away, and it was like, come on, take it, take it, and they just swam away, so...
0: I wonder how long, and again, there's probably no answer to this, but I wonder how long fishing has to take place over the centuries before that becomes hardwired biologically to know like, oh, this is not necessarily naturally what we're used to. There's a fishing boat here. I need to be extra cautious. Yeah, it's curious.
1: Yeah, they like I said the the white sharks are super curious. You know, mm. I I've had a few opportunities to work with people that have worked with the with the bigger animals and and they have similar stories like they you know, they, there's a lot of swimming around and and checking things out and, you know, getting closer and closer and closer before you actually see what you see on TV, which is where they're, you know, flying out of the water at the chunk of tuna or biting the side of the shark cage. Or, like, there's so much interaction or lack of interaction that happened before the shark finally committed to that that, you know, you're not going to see as a viewer because it's boring. Like, mm. know, here comes the shark again. dope Like, that doesn't. But that's all viewers see because that's right. the exciting part. So that's all they think they're about. And meanwhile, it might have taken four hours of this shark swimming around, swimming around, swimming around before it actually decided to commit to you know, bite that tuna head or something like that.
0: Are they constantly feeding or are they like...
1: The, I think they're constantly opportunistic. Okay. Like they're always looking, like, you know, but it's a risk versus reward. Yeah. Right. It's risk versus reward. Like there's a risk that I could get injured going up after this thing. So let me get as much information about this. Let me see what, you know, what what the story is, how how are things going on um, before they commit.
0: And they're a bit vulnerable at like the moment of bite, right? Don't their their eyes kind of roll back? And-
1: yeah, yeah, I, uh, um, yes. So you know that again, that's to protect their eyesight. So depending on the species of shark, you know, some sharks really rely on their on their eyesight to help close the gap, get information about before they before they commit. So if they're had damage to their eyes, I mean, they have a suite of other sensors that could help. But you know, depending on on the species of shark, their eyesight is something. That, and and white sharks, I think, is one that huh. you. You know, you could argue is using their vision to help close close the gap when they're coming in for that that final, you know, when they decide to commit. Um, crazy story! I had a, uh, an opportunity to go and, and um, to Guadalupe, Mexico, and, oh, cool. and swim with the white sharks in crystal clear. Well, I didn't swim with them; we was caged okay. they were in the cage. Um, and so the the white sharks are there to feed on the different pinnipeds that are they have seals and sea lions and stuff. And so we were like the one day we had a lot of sharks around and um i think it was like the second or third day here comes a seal seal comes up now there hadn't been any sharks for 10 minutes or so so a seal comes up to the cage and it's be bopping around swimming around so we're like holy cow this is amazing like with all the sharks around like this thing's going to get taken out right in front of us so all of a sudden we see we see a shark coming sharks coming we're like it's amazing. It's coming right at the seal. The seal's looking at us. It's, you know, chewing on the, the, the fish and stuff that we're going in the water. We're like, this is, like, this is incredible. We're going to have an attack right in front of us. The shark gets closer closer. The shark dives down. And all of a sudden, the seal sees the shark. What's the seal do? The seal swims down to the shark and starts barking at the shark's head. Arp, 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 arp. You could hear it underwater. You could see the bubbles coming up. It starts biting the tail of the shark. Was the seal biting and harassing the shark, and the shark swam away? Whoa! So we're like, what just happened? Like the shark's supposed to be chewing on the seal, and the seal like specifically went down and was like harassing the shark. So the the crew was like, oh, we got to get rid of these seals because all they're gonna do is harass the sharks whenever they come around. Because you know, you guys want to see the sh- sharks, not the seals. So,
0: Have you ever talked to another biologist about
1: like... So what- it's the element of surprise. It's the risk versus reward. Ah. The white shark is obviously there to feed on those seals, but it, it only will commit when it feels it still has the element of surprise. Wow. The shark wasn't interested in feeding on the seal, and even if it was, the seal saw it and went down, so the shark lost the element of surprise, and it wasn't worth the risk, of taking this seal on, you know, head to head because the seal has teeth, and I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen s- seals. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're serious, a formidable. You know, they don't—they're no joke. So it was like, oh, all right. Well, that—that that makes sense. You know, after it was explained to us by biologists what the deal was. Yeah. Of course, we were asking like, what this, what's going on here, and that's—that's that's what it was. So.
0: That's super interesting.
1: So there you go. You know, I guess that's a very long-winded yeah. answer to, you know, are these the mindless, chewing, eating machines? You know, no, not even the
0: complete opposite
1: of that. Until they commit.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Or I'm I'm assuming, like, even, like, a chimpanzee will eat another chimpanzee if there's no vegetation available. Like, I'm sure maybe a shark would cannibalize another white if it had to.
1: Y- yeah. So, mm-hmm. so that's really... So just getting back to the nursery here, the only... Shark. That the only natural predator to our young of the year white sharks is a bigger shark, mm. and the only shark that would be big enough in our area as of right now would be another white shark. And wow. and you know so you know getting into climate change and that sort of thing. So the right now the the. Long Island's waters are very conducive for these, this nursery. Well, if global warming, you know, is happening, continues to happen, you know, so the nursery, that temperature, that, that temperature that they like is going to shift in one of two directions. It's either going to go north to cooler waters or it's going to go offshore to deeper waters so that they maintain that, you know, that, that sweet spot for temperature. Um, if they go north, then they're going to run into the ad- subadult and adult white sharks that are Eaten the seals off Massachusetts, they'll eat the baby white sharks. You know, so right now there aren't any animals that are big enough to take on the young of the year white shark. So you know, Long Island's a really good place for them right now.
0: Since the time that you've been doing this work, have you noticed that nursery location change or migratory patterns change?
1: So that's a great question. Uh, you know. We typically have done what we call our Montauk expedition. So it started in 2016 when, when uh, Osearch came to work with us and help us to increase our, our catching and tagging of white sharks. So in 2015, we caught one. Fished the whole summer, 54 days, and we caught one, huh. which was awesome. And we were the first to put a satellite tag. We had a satellite tag donated to us by the Large Pelagics Research uh, Center. And so we were the first to put a, a satellite tag on a young of the year, and we got a little bit of that migration pattern. And it, was an, it was an awesome, big first step. Like, the first one's been there. And so Osearch came in 2016 and 2017 to help us increase, you know, our, our catch effort and, and the data set that was there, which they did. You know, so we had, um, we caught 20 with them. We caught nine the, in 2016 and, and 11 in 2017. Um, So we went from zero in 2014 to now 21 tagged in 2017. And then Osearch went on to other adventures. Uh, We took what we had learned from uh, Osearch in terms of targeting them and catching them. They only, we only fished in Montauk and, you know, we caught nine in, in two weeks, one year, and we caught 11 in two weeks, you know, the next year. So it's like, all right, we've, we're on the spot. This is the spot. Um, I purposefully f- did not fish in 2018 in Montauk because Montauk's hard for me to get to where I live. It's expensive to stay out there. Oh, know, yeah. so I want And, <laughs> you know, we learned some tricks of the trade and I says I just want to see if we can catch them outside of Montauk we did catch white sharks outside of Montauk those next couple of years but nowhere near the numbers that we had so it's like alright it's worth it for us to, to commit to the resources time and, and money to do a Montauk expedition Because and and so in 2019 um, you know we, we cleaned house so we're like this is great You know, we, we were catching them like crazy and then Basically, the 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 um, the dam went up because we haven't really we've only caught so I haven't caught any in the last two years. You know we've had opportunities like I was just sharing with you last year, but um, and even though we did our Montauk expedition the same week, you know the same sorts of things, it's been a complete bust the last few years. We haven't caught or seen any white sharks, and so it's like all right, well, why? You know how come these previous years? And so we're thinking that. You know, it, it could be water temperature. The water has been warmer out there. You know, there's been different pockets of, of warm water, and so we think we're just missing hmm. the window. Like, you know, it, it's shifted. Now, you know, global warming doesn't happen in two years. But, right. You know, those years have been warmer than they have in the past. So we're thinking um, we're, we're probably not going to do a Montauk expedition this year. Um, we've been fortunate to, to have some, some um, major... Grant funding that's come in that's gonna um, uh, allow us to focus on some of these other species that we haven't haven't been able to just because of funding, and um, we're gonna take the time that we would have spent in Montauk to target some of the other species these next few years. But we're hoping that um, you know that we're gonna pick up, we'll get into that sweet spot when the white those baby whites are are coming through in the areas where we are. So
0: there have been pockets of time when Long Island has been overfished. I've got, man, I've got 260 episodes in my head right now, so I'm forgetting where where somebody told me this, but I had a, I think it's from, I had a woman on who wrote a book called The Lost Boys of Montauk about the shipping vessel that disappeared in the 80s. Um, and I think it was in that, and I'm totally forgetting the species species of fish that was overfished, but it was the type of fish that was like constantly being shipped up to to the Bronx, where it's then like disseminated out through the city, and the fish were just like completely decimated. Hmm. Uh, but I would imagine that, depending on either conservation efforts or like the far end of the other side of that being overfishing, that that would impact the shark populations and how many sharks there are around here.
1: Yeah, uh, and that's definitely a trend moving in the right direction. You mm-hmm. know, so we're we're starting to see the impacts of conservation, right? So that's that's been the real buzzword for the last you know twenty years is, is conservation. Mm-hmm. Conservation. We have to, you know, put rules and regulations in place to um, you know help bring back these overfished fisheries and you know rules and regulations and cleaning up the environment and all that sort of stuff well it we're starting to see the positive impacts of that mm. sorry that it brings more sharks you know that's one of the that's one of the things here on long island you know is whales i you know i've been here a little over 20 years on, on long island you know if you saw a whale or heard about a whale on long island forget about it it made almost national news now whales are completely commonplace you know sharks the sharks have always been here the nursery has always been here we we just were able to figure it out you know and, and show that it is you know these sharks have always been here but Nobody or very few organizations were out there, you know, tagging them and catching them and writing about them. You know, the advent of a cell phone. Everybody has a video in their camera in their pocket now. So, you know, whereas if you were walking the beach 15, 20 years ago, you saw a shark, you had no way to tell the world you know, mm. you would just tell your buddies if you happen to see them. You know, now everybody c- can literally hit millions of people instantly depending on how many followers they have. So so it's not that... The, so there's two things that's happening. There are more sharks here because there is more food here. Mm. And there's more food here because of rules and regulations and, you know, the efforts of conservation that, that have gone into play and we're starting to see see the positive impacts of that. There's also more exposure because everybody has cell phones, everybody has drones, everybody has this sort of thing. So the perception is that there's an exponential explosion in the number of sharks, um, but it's really just that there's more of them being documented. There are more sharks here because of conservation efforts, but it's not an explosion of them. They, they're they very long lived, they're very slow growing, slow to mature, they have you know small numbers of, of offspring per year. It's just that everybody is able to film every shark encounter and, mm. and get it on the news. And so the the perception is that there's more sharks here is greater because of technology than the actual numbers.
0: How prevalent are they, though?
1: Oh, they're there. Yeah. There are a lot of them. And it's great. How? But, and, you know, like I tell everybody, unless you look like a, a bunker or a menhaden, which is about a you know it kind of looks like your water bottle there you know like your stainless steel water bottle that's about the size of them it's about the color of them so unless you look like that you're pretty much have zero chance of getting attacked by right. these sharks you know the shark a lot of the shark species that are here uh, have no interest in dealing with something the size of us they don't even have the capacity they don't have the the teeth that are designed to you know pull off large pieces of something as, as big as us. They're not interested in that in any way, shape, or form. Risk versus reward. It's, 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 you know, they would much rather go chew on you know, one foot, one pound Menhaden than try to attack a 150-pound person. Like it's right. ridiculous. You know, does it happen? Sure. I think the number now um, at the international shark attack Files is like 13
0: mm-hmm.
1: in over 100 years of record keeping for
0: New York. It would be silly to think if you're out there surfing though, like that they're not like they're they're there.
1: Oh, they're absolutely yeah. there. They're, yeah. Talk to any surfer; they've been bumped, they've seen them underneath them. Huh. You know, but that's that's the other thing is, you know, if you were watching the news and you saw that two teenage kids were hit by cars um, because they were playing catch football in the middle of the LIE Long Island Expressway at 4:30 in the <laughs> afternoon on a Tuesday. What would your reaction be? Of course. (laughs) Idiots. Like, what did you expect to have happen? Like, I'm sorry, you know, you got hit by cars, but idiots.
0: Right.
1: Okay. So let's equate that to the ocean. These sharks, the six or seven different species, are here primarily feeding on schools of menhaden, bunker. That's what they're here to do. That's Mm -hmm. what they are doing. Where are the bunker? Well, they're typically... Like the la- this past year, they were literally right on the beach in where the waves are crashing. That's where the bunker are. So where are the sharks? Well, the sharks are right on the edge of those bunker schools, which is w- right where all the surfers are sitting on their surfboards waiting to catch the wave. So you see a shark sitting on the edge <laughs> of their food source – Yeah, Yeah, you're going to see sharks. One bumps into you. The shark doesn't care about you. You're in its way. It's trying to get to the fish. So it it doesn't care, you know, and watching these sharks interact. You know, they bump into each other. They push things out. They're just pushing you out of the way like they would one of their other buddies. So, yeah, it's the same sort of thing. They're playing catch football in the middle of the LIE. You know, yeah, you're going to see sharks. You're going to get buzzed by sharks. You're going to get bumped by a shark.
0: I think it was last August. Oh, I mean, this happens all the time, but I think last it was last August. There were a couple of days. It may have been Jones Beach, but some of the beaches were closed down because there was a shark sighting, and they do a flyover, and it's just like, well, what what do you expect, and like, what are you gonna do?
1: <laughs> like- so there's there's a lot of effort, you know to try and and educate the public Mm. so that it's not mass hysteria. I mean, the amount of mass hysteria, the amount of resources that were spent, you know, paying helicopters to fly and like all this effort, they're there. Just because you don't see them doesn't mean they're not there. And when you do see them, you know, it's such a, they've already been there the whole day. So... you know, it's just trying to be smart, like I'm talking about. If if you see a large school of bunker in front of your swimming area, get out of the water. Yeah. You know, not that you're going to get attacked, but you might get bumped or pushed or something. Like there's, especially if you see a lot of activity, if there's bunker and birds and whales, there's probably going to be sharks there. Um, get out of the water, enjoy the, the, the National Geographic show that's going on in front of you. And when the school passes by and there's no more food there, then, you know, resume your activities. So it's just trying to educate the public on a, living with a, a conserved environment.
0: Yeah, it's like if you wouldn't walk into a bear den and be surprised.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. I, I, there's, I had this thought before. I read an article, I had to write down the name because it's kind of long, but it was in the Times... It's called Drones, Hooks, and Blood: Secrets of the Shark Fishermen of Long Island. It's basically about these guys that do surf casting. Oh man! And they do the whole photo thing where they like lift up the mouth and they're getting their photo, and then, uh, purportedly, throwing them back in after like completely traumatizing them. you know, I'm not trying to sensationalize the argument, the 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 conversation, but like, what are your thoughts on that? And like, how like, what impact would that be having on the populations?
1: Yeah. So this is this is something I'm super passionate about. Okay. And uh, so people that are listening to this that know me, they're they're probably laughing like, oh man, oh man, he's gonna, because I I really really feel strongly against this. The the science has shown that they are killing sharks. Mm. It's been done. Um, sand tigers, um, it's, it's been done on, and, and the studies are being done on some of these other species. So, so there are percentages of these sharks that are getting killed specifically because they're being surf casted, you know, during the surf cast fishery. Um, the, on Long Island, the n- nature, the biology of the sharks that they're going to catch are all prohibited species. So it's primarily sand tiger, sandbar and dusky sharks. Those are the three primary species that these guys are, and gales are catching. That's because of the biology of the animal. They're here to feed on those bunker that are right on the beach. All three of those species are prohibited. You're not allowed to target them. You're not allowed to do un- any unnecessary harm. Well, I don't know what shark I'm gonna catch. Of course, right. But being a surf caster on Long Island during June, July and August and September, you are targeting those prohibited species because Mm -hmm. those are the only species that are basically in those waters. Last year we had spinner sharks that showed up. They're a, non, they're a non-prohibited species. So now all of a sudden, everybody, all these guys went from supposedly trying to catch bluefish and striped bass to, oh, we're catching spinner sharks. Come on, guys. You know, and you talk to any of them and, oh, we're saving the shark. You know, we're very conservation-minded. Uh, we have tags that we're putting in. These apex predator tags were part of the NOAA um, Citizen Science Project. They try to spin it that they really care about sharks and they're they're doing good work and um, it could not be further from the truth. So if I had an opportunity to talk to these people, the best thing that you could do to help sharks is to stop surfcasting for them. Mm. Um, you know these animals are not designed to hold their own weights. So so they they don't they have cartilage they don't have bone. So when you drag them out of the water, whether it's with the leader. Uh, in their mouth, head first, or most of the time, they'll grab them by their tails and drag them backwards. Um, their their bodies are not designed to hold their weight anymore, so the full weight of their bodies are now supported on the sand. Okay, well, are you fishing at night, and what's the sand temperature? So the water temperature is probably going to be you know 60s ish you know, 50s, 60s, low 70s when you get into August? Well, what's the sand temperature? Is it at night on a cool night and you know, it's 10 degrees cooler? Or are you doing it in the middle of the day when it's 10 or 15 degrees hotter? So now that animal's body temperature is changing super quickly in a very short period of time. Is it pregnant? Is it, is it a mature mm. female? And so now the, those pups that are inside of her are feeling the full weight of mom's body. What happens there sand tigers reproduce basically two babies every two years so if you've pulled a mature female out on the beach maybe you just killed two years worth of work and it's only two and it's going to be years before she's ready to to uh, reproduce again if you didn't kill her dragging them backwards you're hyper extending their backs their backs aren't designed to have you know, that weight pulled against them. They're dragging their pectoral fins, which adds even more weight that you're putting on the tail and the vertebrae as you're dragging them backwards. You're filling their gills with sand as you're dragging them backwards. So, you know, gills are basically their lungs. So, you know, you're packing their gills with, with sand. Um, it's just bad. And then, you know, sitting on their backs, pulling their, their, their jaws up. That's all. Un- well, so getting back to the argument. Well, I, 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 didn't, I didn't know. All right. I have to get the, I have to get the hook out. All right. Well, part of the prohibited ruling is unnecessary harm. Well, how fast did you, did you have to drag the shark as far up the beach as you did to get the hook out? Unnecessary right. harm. Did you have to sit on its back? Unnecessary harm. Did you ha- by just by pausing to get the picture, the posed picture? that's unnecessary harm. So it's so bad in so many ways. Um, I just wish these guys would stop. Now, with that being said, I get why they're doing it. I mean, I know how, how exciting um, and thrilling it is to catch these sharks using the gear that we use off the boats. It's fun, that's part of what we do. You know, you're not catching striped bass and b- bluefish in the middle of August. I can't imagine catching a 300-pound sand tiger shark on surf gear from the beach. Like in terms of fishing and a thrill, it's got to be amazing. But w- what are we doing here? You're right. you're you're actively killing species that are whose populations are are in trouble.
0: What do you think about Sharks is a food source, then is there a possibility for that to be done in a, in a sustainable way?
1: yeah, um you know there's rules there's there are rules in place to allow for animals to be taken for consumption um you know it's just a matter of of if, 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 as long as you're doing it mm. legally, there's no reason why they shouldn't be
0: mm. okay now your your research you are a very vital part in like a chain of research, but you're not the end of that research. Meaning um, what you're doing is you're helping to gather data, but then from that data, um, hypotheses, maybe um, hard facts can can be, can be gleaned from it. Are you, do you ever get the information back? Like if you're part of a team and you're sending your data off to somebody who's then going to research further... Do you find out what your data helps to come up with?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Yeah, each of us, each of us in the group, and the group is now expanded to include you know some really great collaborators um, mm. from different organizations and stuff. And so, um, my my and each of us have our lane. Each of us have our spoke on the wheel. That that's our area of expertise. That's our wheelhouse. So I am not a scientist. Um, you know I. I teach marine research, um, but I, I haven't, and I understand the research, but I haven't had a chance, like, I've never been first author on a, on a paper yet, so I'm not the one, and it's just timing, you know, we're talking about it, I'm, I'm flirting with the idea of, of going and, you know, trying to get a master's, doing, taking advantage of the opportunity, you know, we've had, we've had, um, Uh, a student already that's received her master's degree analyzing the work that we did which we're super proud of um we've had some um um uh, interns that have have written you know their final sort of thesis for their um uh graduate undergraduate requirements for the (laughs) honors programs um toby pretty much is our he's our lead scientist so he's the one that's coordinating and orchestrating Who's getting the data? How, what our methodologies are, um, and so I love reading the papers. Mm. You know, so I I have my job, which is to help you know c- conduct the field work, catching the animals, tagging the animals, trying to collect the data, organizing. You know, who's who's coming on the boat? Who you know? Uh, we've been fortunate to add um, two more boats to our our fishing um, arsenal, which is great. So making sure that those guys have crew and have tr- expertise and the equipment that they need um and then yeah when that data is it goes off um you know i i'm fortunate to be able to be a part of the i'm not actually sitting in front of the i haven't actually sat in front of the computer yet to type out my own section but certainly they include you know include me on the drafts and ask for comments and you know i have the ability to make you know, corrections and suggestions and stuff, but that's, it's sort of, that, that part of it is outside of my mm. wheelhouse. It's great to be a part of it. Like I said, if, if I do commit to this master's program, then, then, then that would be my opportunity to really get into the science part and, and be a part of, of, of the analysis of the paper, mm. you know, the, of the data that, that we've collected. So, um, you know, really the, once I see those first initial drafts of the scientific paper, that's the first opportunity that I have to really see how they looked at the data and, and analyzed it and came up with what their solutions
0: are. I think I saw, it, it was a number of years ago, but one of the sharks you tagged off of New York went as far as South Africa. Was that you?
1: No, no. We um, So we, had, we tagged uh, a small mako shark. And um with just the apex predator tag, so just basically like an earring, a non-electronic tag. Mm-hmm. And so we tagged it. I think we were four or five miles off of the um, south shore of Long Island. And it was recaptured almost two years later. And it was it was close to africa. it was it was okay. recaptured almost two thousand miles away.
0: That's so, got to be exciting. So though.
1: that was really, yeah, neat. and that I think that was the first recapture that we had. You know, so tags tags, a shark that we had tagged. That was caught, and then they reported that it was our tag and stuff like that, so
0: gosh, so you're not even going like that deep into the like that far off of the coast,
1: yeah, no, most almost at this point, almost a hundred percent of our shark fishing happens in less than ten miles from the beach.
0: I mean, the possibilities then of like uh, of what lies beneath the ocean and like the the amount of research that could potentially be done. Uh, for for hundreds of years into the future is like oh it's yeah mind-boggling. I mean, it's,
1: I mean just the questions that that we've been able to mm. you know it started out as, you know is this a nursery for white sharks and you know from that has just spiraled you know into and grown to to lots of questions just just from just from our team of the SoFo Shark Research and Education Program team you know now that you know we have access to these animals not just the white sharks but the other species you know. Collaborators are, are coming to you know work with us and, and do exactly what you're saying. You know we have um, you know blood chemistries being looked at, um, basic biology questions, um, contaminants, uh, nutrition, stress, you know all things that are out uh, connectiveness. You know it's like so how related are all these are, are these you know baby white sharks specifically? But so. So it's, it's it's a really awesome opportunity, you know, and technology, it's only getting better, which is going to allow us to then, you know, collect data that we can't currently collect, um, you know, having, having access to the film uh, footage, you know, so now that, so you're seeing, you know, some of our sharks have interacted with other sharks, whether it was an individual or whether it was a school, we actually have, have, A couple of our sharks that swam with entire schools of sharks. So, so like, all right, so now there's, we never had access to that. Like, what was it? Wasn't even on our radar to think about. Like, oh, I wonder what sharks do when they swim in a school until we saw it. And it's like, whoa. So it just keeps spiraling and spiraling. Exactly. So
0: I would be really curious. I read a book recently um, by an author named, author and researcher named Erica Serino, who I might have on here. But she's working at the Carl Safina Center in Stony Brook or it. and it's all about microplastics in the ocean. Um, and obviously, like you're not going to get that data unless you're like in the belly of a of a shark that's deceased. But I would be really well, oh, tell me more. <laughs> well, I would be curious, really so curious what, about what, how it's impacting of, sharks.
1: One of the things that we've started to add is fecal samples. Oh, interesting. So um, it was done on a few sharks here and there um, over the years, but that's definitely something that we've just had the conversation on uh, a couple couple weeks ago that we're going to add fecal swabs to our list of data that we collect. And so part of it, you know, so part of that is potentially going to look at, you know, microplastics in their in their feces. Wow, that's really in exciting. addition to trying to get at what they're feeding on and, you know, that sort of stuff. So there's a... So, so stay tuned. Um, cool. You know,
0: um, we're at an hour, so I think uh, I think I've exhausted what I've been thinking. Although I'm sure on my ride home I'm gonna be like, ah, I should ask Greg this and this and this. Uh, so maybe with with more research and, and more work that you're doing, maybe we'll do a part two in the future.
1: Yeah, I would love to. You know, and depending on timing, if you're if you're game to come out and do one out on the boat and you. Oh, can be, that would be awesome. I mean, that it worked out really well. You know, when with. When we've had opportunities to bring people out into the field and, and do a, you know, a, 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 you know, to have the interviewer, um, out on the water and seeing and doing what we do. Cause that's a whole different bowl of wax, you know, cause yeah, of course. talking about what, you know, all the field components, so.
0: So if people are listening, as as I'm I'm sure they will want to know more, uh, how can they go and learn more or join a charter or how do they do that? Yeah,
1: so I would say um, visit the museum's website. So um, I believe it's SOFO.org. Okay. Um, And certainly they could email me uh, at sharks at SOFO.org. So S-H-A-R-K-S at S-O-F-O dot O-R-G.
0: And that will be in whatever player that you're listening to this in. Uh, I'll have that stuff uh, if you don't have a pen handy to write that down. So, uh, Greg, thank you. Thank you for having me in your home, letting me invade your home uh, yeah, this is really great on a weekend. weekend. I appreciate
1: the opportunity to showcase our, our work.
0: Yeah, of course. And uh, I, I appreciate you doing this, so so cheers. That is a wrap on episode 262 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thank you so much, Greg, Greg, as so many guests do, have me out, had me out at his home, and he fed me. And after we recorded, he showed me all his video and his photos and taught me a whole bunch of stuff. And of course, like my brain's always still firing, and I'm thinking of all these great questions that I didn't include in the conversation. So maybe we'll have to do a part two sometime in the future when more of the research and the information comes back based upon the data that he's helping to uh, to procure. Thank you, Voyagers, for tuning in. Like I said at the outset, there's a whole bunch of stuff coming. I'm really excited about it. Uh, Some really interesting guests over the next couple weeks. So please stay tuned. Give me a follow on social media and all that stuff. Give the podcast a subscribe in whatever player you're listening to this in. And word of mouth, tell some people about it if you liked it. If you didn't, I guess you won't. So there's that. But again, thank you for tuning in. And as always, please, please, please take care of each other. I will catch you all very, very soon.